0: If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash Trade to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash nextbigtrade and use promo code NBT20 to get 20% off our PLUS membership for your first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of Next Big Trade. Enjoy the show.
1: What we're seeing here is like, I've worked with like a ton of first-time home buyers. All of them get help. All of them get help from mom and dad. And if you don't have a mom and dad that have been successful enough or that were fortunate enough to get on the housing ladder 30 years ago, you're kind of screwed. You're kind of out of luck.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Next Big Trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandry from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to The Next Big Trade. Thanks for joining us. Uh, This week, I'm talking to Steve Soretsky. Steve is a Vancouver realtor. Investor and runs the Soretsky Report, one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs. Hi, Steve. Uh, pleased to meet you. How's it going?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Harry. It's uh, things are good, man. There's a, there's a lot happening uh, in the markets these days, and particularly where I'm focused here in Vancouver, and and we're kind of keeping an eye on on all of uh, Canada's housing market. So um, yeah, we're we're keeping busy.
2: I, I almost always ask this, what is it you're focusing in the news? What is it you're looking at in the news at the moment? what's what's most interesting to you?
1: Well, I mean, it's probably similar to what everybody else is watching, which is you know central banks and you know how how aggressive they're going to be in the rate uh, hiking cycle and and how they're going to be able to sort of juggle you know inflation, which I think a lot of it is supply driven. And ultimately, you know, how that's going to feed back into various asset classes. And, and, you know, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, like, you know, the Vancouver market and, and part large parts of Canada, I mean, are very uh, levered housing. It's a very levered housing sector and a very levered uh, e- economy. And, and so I think we're extremely rate sensitive. And so... Um, you know, I think we will maybe be a little bit more impacted than let's say somebody in the US. So that's kind of how I'm watching it is, is really how's that going to influence, uh, you know, the housing market, which is where I play day to day.
2: I know what you mean. the The markets have been awful choppy recently, not easy to make money in. And central banks have been consistently hawkish everywhere around the world. Not surprising. They seem to have gotten this one completely wrong. And now they're making up for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, I always look back to, I know Canada's such a small market, so it, it's, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think we definitely take a lot of our directive, uh, you know, our monetary policy from from the US, for example, right? I mean, the Fed's kind of your, your go-to central bank. But, you know, I'll just remember, like, at the onset of the pandemic, everybody thought the world was, you know, falling apart and, and you know, Great Depression 2.0. And, you know, our Bank of Canada governor came out at the time and he just said, listen, guys, like, if you know we're going to keep rates at zero until the end of 2023, and, and if you're looking to go and buy a house or or invest in your business, like you can be rest assured that rates will stay low for a very very long time. And you know those are his words, not mine. And so that really kickstarted this uh, housing frenzy. Really, I mean, mortgage rates hit rock bottom lows and. You had uh, the green light to basically go and speculate um, on Canada's favorite asset class, which is the housing market. And so, you know, now all of a sudden it's been this huge, this this sudden pivot. Right? It's not the end of 2023. In fact, you know, hey, it's it's you know beginning parts of 2022, and we're actually beginning our rate hiking cycle now. So it's kind of like oopsie, and, uh, and I think it's caught a lot of people off guard
2: here. So is that the investment thesis? Is that your next big trade?
1: Yeah, I think it just I think uh, you know wanted to cover the the housing market here, which is obviously like I said that's kind of my my niche, my specialty. So, you know, I have always had conver- I've had conversations in the past with, you know, some US hedge funds and institutions and stuff and I know there seems to be a fascination with Canada's addiction to housing and, and our, you know, our lust for housing, so to speak. So I figured it'd be kind of an interesting topic just to kind of revisit, uh, you know, where we are today and, and you know, some of the similarities between us and the U.S. and, and some of the nuances. Um, but I think there is a lot to cover. I mean, I'm not going to give specific investment or trading ideas here, but I think you guys can kind of put the pieces together and do your own sort of research. Um, but I think there's a lot to sort of unpack
2: here. So... Talk us through the background. I, I'm aware that Canada's had a, an outsized re- love affair with real estate in the last. Let me think. I'm, I'm, is it right to say thirty years, or is it longer? Yeah.
1: yeah, It's a thirty. It's a thirty-year bull market now.
2: I remember when it in the earlier days of it, the U.S. market was a bit stronger, and people, and then the Canadians just kind of took that ball and ran with it in the big. Ontario, the big cities of Ontario and uh, British Columbia. Now, that's my impression anyway. I'm not as well-briefed as you, so I should really shut up, shouldn't I, and let you talk?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's. Uh, yeah, I think you've nailed it spot on. You know, it really has. It's been a 30-year bull market, uh, so it is entrenched in Canadians' brains that it's the way to get wealthy in, in Canada or that's the way it's sort of perceived, right? I mean... Uh, the sort of boomer generation, that's where they've created their retirement nest egg. Uh, I always say, I always joke in Canada that, you know, nobody gets excited in Canada about investing in the TSX. Uh, everybody wants to get long a couple pre-sale condo projects and, and speculate on housing, right? So like in the US, I think you guys obviously have the stock market there. Everybody loves the S&P 500 and that's kind of like your you know, the typical investment strategies just get long that and dollar cost average. And in Canada, I think it's really just dollar cost averaging real estate. And so again, it's been this 30 year trade. I think that, you know, people have to remember that in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when you guys, you know, had your big bust there, that in Canada we really had Nationally, about a ten percent housing correction. You know, most markets corrected about ten percent. The correction really only lasted about eight to twelve months, and then it started to move higher again. And so, we really didn't see a lot of the impacts of that financial crisis. And so, what happened was we never really, uh, you know, the household balance sheets never delevered, and uh, real estate prices didn't really have much of a decline, other than a very short sort of quick, painful thing. And then, uh, you know, so it kind of re-ingrained and cemented the idea that you cannot lose in Canada. So the notion is that Canadian banks are sort of indestructible, and we've got the best banking system, we've got a housing market where everybody wants to move to and live to, and and you just, you can't lose money in real estate. And I think that has been reaffirmed again during the onsets of the pandemic, right? Everybody said, oh my gosh, the world is collapsing. We had in Canada, we had you know record unemployment levels uh, temporarily in, in what, April, May, June of 2020. And yet house prices did not decline. In fact, they went up. So it just kind of reaffirmed that the notion in Canada is that the housing market is so big that no government or policymaker will intentionally let it fall. They will always come in and step in. And so now we're at a very, again, very interesting uh, time where at least they're saying, you know, policymakers are saying, the Bank account Canada is saying we have to raise rates and we're going to do so
2: aggressively. So I'm curious because certainly it's true that if you bought real estate in Canada, you did great. Um, It's certainly true that you never had a serious drawdown, you didn't really have tough market conditions, you didn't have the 08-09 disaster that the United States had. But what were the root causes of this bull market in Canada? Because now, it's it's definitely gone reflexive. And, you know, if people don't know what reflexive means, it's a George Soros phrase. And it's uh, the idea that bull markets often create bigger bull markets. uh, So that markets can go a lot further than you think before they turn. What's the underlying causes, in retrospect, of that big bull market we saw in Canada?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely reflexive here. Um, I think what happened was, well, I mean, certainly from the sort of banking angle in, uh, you know, post-GFC, is the government basically came in and guaranteed a lot. There was kind of like a secret bailout of the banks. Um, They basically... Um, even you had some of the big bank economists coming out and cautioning that basically they were being incentivized to continue lending, uh, so we continued to lend. So loan growth actually ramped up, um, you know, in 2009, um, basically spurred on by the banks and the and the government. So CMHC, which is our mortgage insurers, was essentially uh, insuring and back backstopping a lot of the, these loans. So the banks were basically allowed to keep lending and that sort of prevented a a natural sort of decline in home prices. And then, so we kind of, we kind of more or less went up a little bit and then moved sideways, treaded water for three, four years. And then starting in 2015, that was sort of the onset of peak outflow or massive outflows out of China. So we had a ton of uh, foreign investment into the housing market in 2015, 16, uh, which ultimately I always say sort of, you know, so a lot of the foreigners kind of got the party started. And then the locals, you know, seeing what was going on, oh my gosh, I'm going to get priced out of the market. These foreigners are coming in and buying up all our real estate. They then levered up uh, to sort of try to keep pace. And so that that was sort of the next leg of the bull market from 2015 to 2017, and then things things kind of started to wobble a bit in 2017. So if if, if you go back and look back, um, one of our alternative lenders, which was Home Capital Group, uh, got into some trouble. There was some some concerns about the housing market starting to wobble. Uh, there was there was a, some scandals out about them having uh, you know a whole bunch of. Uh, unscrupulous mortgage brokers at at their firm, Uh, you know, a lot of fraud going on. And so um, they ultimately got bailed out by Warren uh, Warren Buffett. Um, And so there was some contagion early on, and then Warren Buffett came in, sort of stemmed that fire out. So that's kind of where where we got to that. 2018, the housing market dropped again uh, ever so slightly because rates went up. And so when we talk about rate sensitivity in Canada... I always go back and remind people. So in 2018, you'll recall, you know, rates were going up. You had Jay Powell that just came in and says, we're going to keep raising rates. And and then, you know, the, what's the stock market wobbled and, and uh, went to bear market there in, what is it, December of 2018? Yeah. And then in 2019, started cutting rates again, right? So in 2018, as rates were going up, the, the typical five-year mortgage in Canada uh, hit about 3.5%. And everyone thought it was going to go to 4%. So everyone just says, hey, it's 35 oh my God, rates are going up. They're going to go to 4%. Let's just wait. Let's not buy housing. It's going to, it's going to crash. And so in Vancouver, where I'm located, there was a, it was an 18-year low in greater Vancouver home sales in 2018. And that was predominantly due to the interest rate environment. And in, in the greater Toronto area it was a 10-year low in home sales. So, And those are the two really the most important systemic markets in Canada. Those two markets basically drive policy. So the two most important housing markets in Canada, when rates hit 3.5%, saw massive declines in home sales. And so now I fast forward to today, um, You know, our mortgage rates are north of 4% on substantially higher prices. So I'm sure we'll, we'll unpack that further. But that, that's kind of part of the investment thesis today.
2: And is that what's changed? You've become bearish because rates are just high and going higher.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was super. Uh, you know, I I've always been one to sort of freely, you know, transition uh, based on whatever market conditions are doing or what the outlook I feel. And I, you know, at the during the pandemic, uh, I was actually quite bullish. I, I told people prices were going to go higher because again we had mortgage rates at 1.5%, and there was a speculative fever that was clearly brewing, and and lo and behold, we hit all-time record highs in house price growth. So nationally, home prices ripped a uh, cycle high of 29% annual price appreciation in Canada, 29%. And so now we are at this time where in the last six months, your mortgage rate, your typical five-year mortgage rate, which is what every Canadian basically borrows off of, has gone from about 2% to about 4, 4.2%. So we've seen effectively a doubling of mortgage rates in a span of about five or six months.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N dot com.
2: Yeah, the cost of funds is a key determinant of these things, but not for everybody. Um, so I, I know that in the past... Uh, Vancouver was a very popular market for Chinese investors. Uh, some of those Chinese investors may well have been Communist Party of China officials. Um, and if I was a Communist Party of China official, I would definitely look to to buy Vancouver real estate. It's a great place to retire. They don't shoot you if you've done something wrong. And it's a, your mistress is probably prefers to live there than back in Harbin or somewhere like that. So... Those guys, I don't think they are price sensitive. Um, I think they were perfectly happy to get their money out of China and put it somewhere where the Chinese authorities couldn't get to either them or it. Um, have they? Have those guys stopped buying?
1: No, that's a really good point, and I think that's kind of like an important assertion because you know, no markets—you can't necessarily paint markets with a broad stroke, right? So, I always say that um, you know, first and foremost, yeah, the, the Chinese bid um, has really not ever return to what it was in 2015, 16. Uh, it's really just a fraction of what it used to be. And that's why we're still seeing softness in parts of the markets, right? So, um, you know, for example, like I live on the west side of Vancouver here. Um, people that were buying, you know, single family houses in the west side of Vancouver, you know, those price tags are three and a half, four million a half, $4 million. That market really hasn't moved a whole lot since 2015, six, it actually has been pretty flat and that's because that investment just has never really quite returned. Now there is a lot of like local Chinese money that's already here. It's already in play. Um, and so that money is obviously still circulating around. There's a lot of capital here in Vancouver. And so, and like I said, there's a lot of wealth and, and so that, that market is always going to be there, but just the new inflows, I mean, obviously with a lot of China being locked down and shut down that, we're just not seeing it. And I think one way, one space to look at that is where they are extremely active, right? So, if you understand the Chinese property market, you know that they love buying new. They love buying brand new high-rise concrete towers, and they love buying them off the plan or pre sells what we call them, right? So, you know, you 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 put down your deposit. And in four or five years, you, you know, you close on the property, the developer completes the project, and you you move in, or you rent it out, or whatever, or you leave it vacant. For a lot of these individuals, um, what we're seeing in 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 that market. So if you go into downtown Vancouver, where a lot of these like high end luxury, swanky projects would normally be launched, they're typically launching around twenty five hundred dollars a square foot, um, and that market. At twenty five hundred dollars a square foot, there's just not a strong local bid because they just they can't afford it. They can't afford you know one point three million dollars for a five hundred square foot one bedroom. Like the numbers just don't really work. And so that that market was heavily reliant on sort of that offshore bid, and and those projects have really struggled. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of developers that that have ultimately actually paused projects, when so they've been sitting on on projects for three four years. Um, just because that that bid hasn't really
2: returned. So, if you were renting out that kind of uh, unit, what kind of rental yield would you be looking at relative to bank uh, bank funding or mortgage funding?
1: Yeah, I mean, so if you're buying like one of those ones, like I know one of them just completed now, so. Uh, you know, you're probably looking for a one-bedroom. I mean, again, the resale market is not quite as high as is the pre-sale market. But let's just, for all intents and purposes, let's use $2,000 a square foot for, as, a, as a reference point. So, you know, you might buy a one-bedroom, 600 square feet for $1.2 million, brand-new construction just completed. You'll probably be able to rent that out for about $3,000 a month. Um, that, that's probably a fairly conservative number. So there's not a lot of yield there, right? I mean, people are basically just, it, it's really just a place to, to park your money, uh, store of value, so to speak, get it out of the country. Um, I would say that that's a sh- very big element in some of these f- sort of high, fancy
2: high-rise towers in Vancouver. Okay, so yeah, there's no real valuation support and it's reliant on a continued flow of money from investors, international investors who are not necessarily from China. just happens to be the case that quite a few of them have been in the past. And certainly, you know, I read in the Wall Street Journal, other papers, that policy in China has changed um, and the authorities are no longer smiling at, you know, no longer happy and relaxed at people taking their money out of China to put it into Vancouver real estate. So it would make me nervous if I owned a lot of Vancouver real estate for sure.
1: Yeah, they're yeah, definitely looking to repatriate a, little about, a lot of that capital. And I just to sort of, you know, for some of the listeners that aren't necessarily familiar. So I think a lot of the Chinese capital kind of started drying up on its own in 2016. But then our local government in Vancouver and in Toronto, uh, they brought in a foreign buyers tax. So they brought in, well, now it's 20%. So basically, if you're a foreigner, like, you know, you don't have a Canadian passport or you're not a permanent resident of Canada or a student that's going to school here, you have to pay a 20% upfront tax on your purchase, right? So a million dollar purchase is going to cost you $200,000 in taxes. So that's discouraged some of the investment as well. And then there's been a whole host of other taxes that we brought in. We brought in an empty homes tax in. We brought in like the speculation tax where if you're not paying Canadian income taxes or renting out your house, then the BC government will come in and say, well, you got to pay an additional tax. And so it really has discouraged a lot of those uh, capital flows as well.
2: So... Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I'm kind of interested in the Vancouver market is I think it might tell us a lot about similar markets internationally. Vancouver's not the only place that has benefited from high net worth individuals from places like China or Russia, uh, who came in and invested in real estate. And London, my hometown, but also New York, my other hometown, saw a lot of flows uh, in from those kind of parts of the world. And I'm pretty sure that in the case of Russia, those flows will stop. And I suspect in the case of China, those flows are going to stop as well. And it does make you wonder about how markets that benefited from those flows will perform going forward, because, you know, they're expensive for locals and the foreigners aren't coming anymore.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's 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 kind of an interesting setup, right? I mean, I don't know how all the geopolitics is going to play out where you know, maybe post-China COVID zero policy. I mean, if you're in, what, Shanghai or Beijing and you've been locked down for several months, I mean, when you reopen, you might be pretty desperate to try to get some capital out and, and get out of there. But how easy is it going to be? And like you said, there was that piece in the Wall Street Journal where, you know, the government's now asking people to basically sell their overseas assets and and divest and, and bring capital back to China. So, yeah, it's a it's a tough one to figure out how it's going to play out. I mean, uh, I think we are in a very interesting geopolitical setup uh, where these very expensive international housing markets um, could come under strain. And I think there's, I think the other thing is the, the the political setup is 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 interesting as well because we have this cost of living crisis, right? So we've seen right. during the pandemic, like policymakers overstimulated and you know created this really uh, horrible affordability issues Um, from that angle. And then you throw on, you know, rising costs of food and fuel. And I think there's a lot of social unrest. And so I think we're going to see more and more governments coming out with policy measures that sort of attack investment in the housing space. You know, for example, here, I think you'll see more rent controls and, and of that nature and trying to discourage capital from, you know, inflating housing prices further. And, and obviously central banks are doing their best part now to to raise the cost of capital and to, to squash inflation. And that's going to hurt, I think, the, the, the levered housing markets. And that's, you know, again, coming back to full circle to, to Vancouver and Toronto in particular.
2: So that, that's such a, a good point, Stephen. People don't talk about it enough. There's always a political angle to everything. Uh, I had friends who've been doing tours of Washington recently um, and uh, they reported back to me that you know it was striking when they spoke to people at, say the treasury or the central bank how there was absolutely no sense of concern about asset prices there was a sense of concern about equality issues or affordability issues or the, the basically the bottom tr- 20% of the population, not the top 20% of the population's concerns. Um, and that kind of makes a lot of sense because policy did an awful lot of favors for the top 20% in the previous 12 months, right? We, we've seen asset prices go up by a massive amount. So we shouldn't be so surprised that governments decided that its focus should be on the bottom 20% of the income distribution.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really fascinating here in, you know, for example, in Vancouver is that, you know, you look at these prices. So, for example, um, I mean, single-family homes are becoming less and less a thing here, but the, the, the typical, the average price, the typical price of a very average home in Vancouver now, in greater Vancouver, so I'm not just talking directly the city, but sort of the surrounding suburbs as well, is now sitting at $2 million. Um, you know, even for a two-bedroom condo, for example, you're going to need at least... Eight nine $900,000 um, to sort of get in. And so what we're seeing here is this, you know, people say, well, where's the money coming from? How can people afford it? What we're seeing here is like, and I've worked with like a ton of first-time homebuyers. All of them get help. All of them get help from mom and dad. And if you don't have a mom and dad that have been successful enough or that were fortunate enough to get on the housing ladder 30 years ago, you're kind of screwed. You're kind of out of luck. And so we're creating this um, this system where it's kind of now depends on who your family is and and so in order for you to get up on the housing ladder you kind of need a family that can help you out and so i have i you know nearly 10 years of doing this i've worked with very few home buyers uh, that have actually been able to scrap together their own capital and, and get into the housing market on their own. Almost all of them have had parent parental help. And so, yeah, I think you, coming back to political and societal ramifications, it's creating a very interesting dynamic, let's put it that way.
2: Interesting in the in the Chinese proverb sense of the word, yeah. yeah. So, it's funny. So, this is going to come as a shock to some people, but I can actually read. And I uh, I, I used to read Dickens. Dickens is a real, it's, it's, it's not always the lightest read in the world. Um, but one of the things I realised, rereading some of the kind of Dickens novels, is at no point does he ever mention the word mortgage. And I don't think many people in Dickensy in England were getting mortgages, you know. It, back uh, 200 years ago, uh, you either inherited your real estate or it was you, you didn't have any. Right, you don't get real estate if you don't inherit it because in, wages were never high enough except for a tiny minority of people to, to pay for houses now i say that they clearly there's something in between because london expanded throughout the whole period but for a huge block of people that no one ever talked about mortgages and mortgage lending was out out of reach and i wonder if we're going back to a time like that when frank who produces a podcast by the way frank frank's frank's got a strong interest in this issue because he'd like to buy some real estate and uh it's tough i'm not it's not clear to me that the advantages that I had when I was a kid, so that I could get out and, and get a job that paid enough for me to buy a place, will be something that kids around today can do.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think that um, I said I think that's kind of where we're going. I think we're seeing at least here, and again, and I'm kind of at the forefront because I'm in one of the most expensive and most unaffordable housing markets in the world. So. Just to kind of tell you how people are living you know here day to day is like if you've got a house in it you've automatically got a basement suite that you're renting out to generate enough income to offset the mortgage we're seeing more and more families moving in together um you know getting one sort of maybe bigger house to have two families living in there to again sort of offset and carry some of the costs um and if that isn't the case, then we're just seeing um, younger families ultimately, uh, you know, raising families, raising kids in, in you know, two-bedroom condos, for example. And and the the square footage of, of housing is, is shrinking, basically. Uh, we've seen a huge shift over the last five years in particular towards, you know, all these, as we talked about, these pre-sale condos Um the financialization of housing, these are predominantly sold out to investors. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's an important distinction to make. Like the people that are buying, like lining up for these pre sales, I call them basically like I call them basically futures contracts, right? You put down ten percent and you get so you get into your ninety percent leverage and then you hope that the market goes up. That when you close and the project's complete in three and a half years, that you'll you'll have made some money. So the investors just love them, but then now the developers are building to what the investors love, which is oh, it's you know it's a two bedroom, two bathroom, six hundred and eighty square feet.
2: That's how you make money.
1: Yeah, because you, you go well, you know, you can rent that out for whatever three thousand bucks a month, and 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 it's not it's not designed for for a, for a growing family. It's designed for the investor to
2: uh, I'm really grateful you did this. You sent me some bullet points of your argument. and I really appreciate that. Thanks, Steve. But one bullet point really stood out to me, which was the uh, Canadian household debt to GDP ratio. I want to talk us through that point.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's extremely important. Canada's household debt to GDP is running at nearly 110%. So, Basically, what what this is is kind of going back to the start of our conversation, which was you know these households, these household balance sheets never deleveraged uh, in the global financial crisis. Um, it's similar to like the U.S. Right, you guys went through a very painful experience, but in the process, households de- uh, you know delevered and and got rid of a lot of the bad debt. So when you go into this rate hiking cycle and these rising interest rates. I don't even think you can really compare like U.S. households to Canadian households. I know everyone keeps talking about how the U.S. consumer is in great shape. Um, I just don't think the same can necessarily be said about Canadians. Um, And so, you know, you asked me earlier about, well, don't they? Doesn't there just a lot of sort of offshore money and Chinese money that isn't necessarily rate sensitive? And I would say yes. There's definitely a decent element of the markets to that, but there's also a, a local market. Um, that I think is extremely rate sensitive and that's why we're seeing already a significant drop-off in sales uh, activity and we're seeing a decline in prices right now. Um, But I'll give you an example. So if you take the National Home Price Index in Canada, which again, I know there's not necessarily maybe a national housing market, so but let's just assume that there is. So I think the National Home Price Index today, I believe is at about $870,000. So that basically says the, the typical home price in Canada... Across all product types, about eight hundred seventy thousand dollars. If you take the um, the mortgage rate, which was about two percent, uh, about six months ago, to where it is today, you're just over north of four percent. So, if you assume you're a new purchaser and you got to buy in at today's pricing versus what it was six months ago, you're talking about an eight hundred dollar increase in just six months. Um. So it's assuming again, a thirty year amortization at borrowing on a five- year term at about four percent. So you tell me where a highly levered Canadian household uh, balance sheet can suddenly afford you know eight hundred dollars increase in monthly payments, now tack on you know rampant food inflation, fuel prices, cost of living going up. Um, record, you know, 30-year highs in inflation, tell me there's not going to be a squeeze. And so I think that's where we're seeing the squeeze. And that's kind of like the whole thesis of the call. I was like, listen, like, I I think we're at a very particular uh, sensitive time. And, and so something, something's got to give, and we're already seeing that. And so again, you say, well, again, the Chinese market. Well, I can tell you the Chinese market, for example, isn't that active in the suburbs of Vancouver, or the suburbs of Toronto. And we're already seeing from, yes, peak peak craziness, peak pricing back in February, uh, we're seeing the typical house down about f- close to 15% in in the suburbs of Vancouver and Toronto right now. So th- those people are already uh, witnessing, you know, uh, I guess a reverse wealth effect, if you want to call it that.
2: You know, there was something striking. As I said, I was struck by your debt to GDP, uh, household debt to GDP ratio point. So I went and looked because I, I got access to a Bloomberg. Got to use the damn thing, right? They're expensive, <laughs> um, and it was it was really interesting. The US household debt to GDP now is seventy five percent, compared to a hundred and ten in in Canada. Um, in the UK, it's ninety five percent right now. Um, But at the peak in in 2008, uh, US household debt to GDP went to 98%, and in the UK it was as high as 99.5%, or I call it 100%. So Canada is pretty damn impressive at 110%, and one might expect bad things to happen if real estate was really sensitive to levels of debt.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll give you one more stat, maybe for the listeners here. But uh, over the past five years, um, this is courtesy of my my good friend Ben Rabideau with uh, North Cove Analytics. Free plug for him. Um, but you know, over the last five years, uh, real real GDP growth in Canada eighty five percent of real GDP growth, GDP growth in Canada has come from uh, residential housing and consumption. So really, like. Any growth that's been created in Canada over the past five years has come almost exclusively through housing and, and the in consumption that comes off of housing. Right? I mean, so you know, I just think that uh, when housing activity dries up, like we're starting to see now, um, you know. All of a sudden there's less transactions, and maybe you don't need to buy a new couch and a new TV and, and you can't you can't use your home equity line of credit to then go buy a new car. And and so there's just these compound effects. So that's kind of just like how I'm looking at things here as we move forward. And and you know, we've got a, another rate hike announcement from the Bank of Canada coming for June 1st. It seems like 50 basis points is pretty much baked in at this point. So um, you know, we'll see another increase in debt servicing costs. I think it's important to understand for maybe your listeners that aren't from Canada. So we have a five-year fixed mortgage in Canada, right? That's your typical, you can't really get longer. You can technically get 10, but nobody ever takes 10. So you got a five-year fixed rate mortgage and then you've got your variable rate product, right? So that will typically change depending on whatever the Bank of Canada is doing. Um, What we've seen over the last 18 months throughout this 2018, 24 months throughout this sort of housing bull market is that people have actually opted to go through variable rate product. So we've had 60% of new mortgage originations have opted to go with variable rate mortgages, not fixed rate. So it just makes the rate hiking tightening cycle that much more complicated, um, I think, for policymakers here domestically. Uh,
2: Complicate? You say complicated. I say effective.
1: Yeah. Right. Oh, it'll be effective. All right. Yeah. And uh, like I said, we've just gotten going. I know the market's done a lot of the tightening through through, bond, through the bond market. Um, but yeah, I think housing activity is slowing rather dramatically and probably more than I think policymakers uh, are aware of, to, to, be, to be very blunt.
2: So here's uh, the, the, my big question, which is, suppose you're right, and I suspect you're right how can listeners use this insight what what can we do to exploit you know to to use what we know
1: yeah i mean i think like obviously uh, i'm sure you guys can do some more research on the equity markets but i mean i think like we look at some of the you know we call them i guess the canadian equity market housing bellwethers so to speak right so like you know let's take the the big 3 which was sort of you got Basically, two alternative lenders and then one sort of just like um, almost like a payday lender. But so you got Equitable Group, which is sort of your alternative financing channels. So aside from the big five Canadian banks, it's basically like if you can't get a, a traditional loan because you're a business operator or whatever, um, you'll, you know, you go to these two alternative lenders. So one of them is Equitable Group. Uh, I think if you look at the uh, stock price movement and that. Um, over the last three four months, I think it's pretty telling. Uh, Home Capital Group is the other one that was the one again that was bailed out uh, by Warren Buffett in 2017, and then you know you've got Go Easy. So I I, I just think like again I will not give direct uh, you know stock market. Sort of advice here, and what to short and what. It, it's it's
2: unwise. We're we're both too good looking for jail.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I I just think like it's probably you know I think anyone can kind of put two and two together. It's like households are overlevered. We're going to rate height tightening cycle. Where's the sensitivity? I think that's probably in some of these alt alt lenders. Um, you know, I've had you, know, you could look at uh, some of these furniture shops and stuff like that right i think that right yeah again i think i think if people want to do their research they can figure that out pretty pretty quick where where some of the
2: sensitivities going right. to be but yeah there's that proactive way of exploiting it and then there's those people who are sitting there asking the question you know all all of your customers are asking i i'm i'm afraid of missing out should i invest now or should i wait And, um, you know, should invest. I hate that term with regard to real estate. You're meant to live someplace. It's not an investment if you can't live someplace, right? So until you buy the second place, the second place is the investment. The first place is where you live. Um, And in that sense, I could see why people might say, you know what? I'm not in a hurry. I'm going to shop around nice and slow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of the people that I'm kind of working with right now in today's environment is basically people that are making like lateral moves. Um, so you've already, you're already in the, you're already in the housing market. You're, you're trading one for one. Uh, so you're somewhat, it's somewhat irrelevant what's happening with, with pricing in the near term. Uh, but we're definitely seeing, you know, like a first time home buyer, I think is taking a more cautious approach as they should be. And same with investors, right? I don't think there's a whole lot of, urgency to be adding additional exposure here. Um, I just think that we're, we're already starting to see the early days of a pricing correction. Like I said, I mean, in the suburbs of Vancouver, we've got prices off 15% from their peaks right now. Um, the inner city, particularly that, that say that downtown condo market, uh, is holding up much stronger. Um, I'd say prices are holding in there very firm right now. And I think that's actually to go uh, is really on a post-pandemic world. So we saw, you know, everybody was talking about, oh, work from home, you never need to go back, why live in the city? Uh, As this pandemic has kind of come to an end, more or less, we are seeing uh, the downtown market actually more or less come back to life. Um, Prices are holding up despite those frothy suburbs where all the sort of speculation was. We're seeing that's where we're seeing most of the declines right now.
2: I work from home. If anything is an advert for going to the office, it's working from home. There you go. Especially, I mean, especially when you've got kids. Yeah. Not that I don't love love my kids. I, I love them dearly, but I could do with eight hours spent away from them. <laughs> I,
1: I, <laughs> and for the ones that do have to go back into the office, right? All of a sudden, we're talking about record fuel prices. Um, right, right. So making that commute maybe a little bit less desirable um, as, as some of us go back to the office. So, yeah, I just think that those particularly those outskirts where you have sort of more of the local money, you had huge run-ups in prices. And I mean, I can tell you in in Vancouver and Toronto, and these suburbs, um, over the past three, three and a half years, a lot of that product has doubled in price in about three and a half years. So it was not like a small move up in prices. It was a massive jump. And so, yeah, you've got a lot of this larger cohort that's, I think, a little bit over-levered, that is much more, you know, more blue-collar, they're much more sensitive to rates, plus their housing market was already, I think, crazily overvalued. Um, I think that's where – I think there's going to be some pain there.
2: How, you know, you know, we were just drawing to a close, and suddenly uh, I, I, I got a question. Um, how bad could bad be? How bad are we talking here?
1: Oh, I'm always hesitant to give – you know, like specific price targets here. I mean, I think, like I said, conservatively the typical property in the suburbs since its peak in February is off about 15%. If you believe rate hike forecasts, apparently we're still in the early days. Uh, I don't necessarily believe they're going to get that far. That's my honest opinion. I just think that they're going to get stopped out here. Um, but, you know, I think, like I said, we got 50 basis points coming here in June. So I think there's there's, there's definitely, I think there's still quite a bit more room to go. And we're at 15% right now. So I, I, by all accounts, that will, could end up being like the, probably one of the deeper corrections in the housing market for 30 years, right? We've had this 30-year bull market. So parts of the real estate market, again, that's not to paint all of Canada. I think there's parts of Canada that are actually relatively still valued, quite well and quite fairly but there's parts of the market particularly in the suburbs of vancouver and toronto um that are highly susceptible
2: you know with the energy prices doing what they're doing i can imagine now is a great time to be living in cities in alberta but uh you know going back to that how bad can bad be um i have a vivid imagination Uh, i have to for all sorts of reasons but uh and i can imagine like if, if you're thinking the real estate market itself getting bad might switch off the Bank of Canada, there's always a possibility that the problem's inflation, not the real estate market. So that ultimately, if it was if it were just the real estate market, sure, the thing goes off the boil. The Bank of Canada says enough's enough. The guy they're on the ground. They don't want they can't take another punch, and it it calls its dogs off. Right, it stops but if it's a problem it is actually inflation and inflation doesn't switch off just because the real estate market fell you could get a really big move
1: oh, i agree yeah i think that i mean that's that's really the dilemma that they have today that's the decision they're going to have to make you know are they going to sacrifice basically the currency or are they going to sacrifice you know the households or their or are they the asset prices yeah. um typically speaking as we're all aware you know they've tended to decide with the asset holders will this time be any different? I think we're about to find out. And so that's really what makes it so interesting.
2: Absolutely. Um, Steve, thank you so much for talking us through this. If people wanted to get some more of your thoughts or follow you and, and you know, follow this subject better, how would they do that?
1: Uh, yeah, super active on Twitter, uh, just at Steve Saretsky. Um, I also run a pretty, uh, you know, pretty busy uh, YouTube channel. Uh, you can just YouTube, Steve Saretsky. Uh, You know, we do like a weekly show, sort of on Canadian macro and housing, and uh, also a macro-based um, podcast as well. That's also on YouTube there. Which uh, I think some of your guests have actually been on a Real Vision as well there. So there's there's the three of us. So yeah, I would just say uh, you know Twitter, Twitter, and YouTube at Steve Szeretsky. There's tons of Canadian content there for you if you're if you're focused on that.
2: I'll go look you up and follow you with my anonymous account that I use for of all the nefarious purposes one uses these so, things yeah, you So
1: yeah, uh, you can chirp me on there all the time. I love that's
2: it. R- that's right, exactly. Um, thank you so much,
1: Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Harry. Thanks for having me on.
2: All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else.